This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. The subject of quality of life, and it's a term that's heard frequently today, and it's one of those terms that has marked out this turbulent and somewhat frenzied time called the 90s with so many options and so many choices and so many things to do and so many places to go. But what you're finding with so many people in those times is that more is not necessarily better. No one can have it all. And if you try to have it all, the quality of life inevitably goes down rather than up. Because the need today is not for more. The need today is for discernment and discipline, the ability to carefully pick and choose what really counts, what is most important in the midst of so much. Some of us who are a little further along in life than maybe the rest of us can look back now over our lives and wish that in some ways we would have done some things better, that we would have made some choices a little wiser and a little smarter in order to have improved the quality of our lives. One of my favorite sources of fun years back was Irma Bombeck, who died recently, but before she left this earth, she wrote this following piece that reflects back on life and the quality of life. She says this, if I had my life to live over again, I would have waxed less and listened more. Instead of wishing away nine months of pregnancy and complaining about the shadows over my feet, I would have cherished every minute of it and realized that the wonderment growing inside me was to be my only chance to assist God in a miracle. I would have invited friends over to dinner even if the carpet was stained and the sofa faded. I would have eaten popcorn in the good living room and worried less about the dirt that you could see when you lit the fireplace. I would have taken the time to listen to my grandfather ramble about his youth. I would have burnt the pink sculptured candle that looked like a rose before it melted away while being stored. I would have sat cross-legged on the lawn with my children and ne never worried about the grass stains. I would have cried and laughed less while watching television and cried and laughed more while watching life. I would have shared more of the responsibility carried by my husband, which I took for granted, I would have eaten less cottage cheese and more ice cream. I would have never bought anything just for the sake of it being practical. When my child kissed me impetuously, I would never have said, later, now go wash up for dinner. I would have savored those moments. There would have been more I love you's and more I'm sorry's and more I'm listening, but mostly given another shot at life, I would have seized every minute of it and never given it back until I'd squeezed every ounce out of it. Now that's a statement of wisdom about life. And some of us look back over our lives and the quality of our life, and we have some regrets. We wish we would have done it smarter. We wish we'd have done it better. Sometimes we wish we wouldn't have done it at all, right? You know, as a Christian, the value of quality of life should be at the top of our list. It should be of supreme value to us. And the reason for that is because did not Jesus Christ come to give us a better quality of life? 
I mean, his mission, he summed up. He said, I have come that you might have it abundantly, this life that I want to give to you. And unfortunately, so often the Christian life is presented more in a series of no's than of life. No to sin, no to temptation, no to the world. And while those things are true, they miss the real essence of the Christian life. Yes, the Christian life does contain some no's, but what are the yeses of the Christian life? You know, when Jesus Christ came, He didn't tell the guys no. He told the guys, follow me, follow me. And in that path, I'm going to show you the yeses of life, where the high places are, where the thrills are, where the adventure can be found, where you can be stretched beyond your tiny world and find a bigger share of life. That's why I've come. So when I come to the Christian life and when I come to this text, what I need to know is not how to avoid the world, though there are places where we need to learn that. I need to learn how to outlive the world. And that, in essence, is really what Paul is going to tell us here in this second chapter of 1 Corinthians as you look at it. And in that, Paul is reminding us about how to find the quality of life that each of us need. But to have it, what he's going to remind us, just as Dan reminded us of that simple but foolish place called the cross, he's going to remind us that the Christian life has some basics attached to it, like batteries to make something go. And without these basics, your life will go nowhere but in circles. And it won't find the quality of life that Jesus would offer to us. Now, he's going to talk to us about two of these basics in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So to outlive the world, the first thing he's going to say, starting in verse 6, he says, you've got to have a special kind of wisdom. And he wants to talk to us about how to have this special kind of wisdom. Look at your text there at verse 6. He starts by saying, yet we do speak wisdom, and we speak it among those who are mature. Now, I want to stop at that moment. He's not talking to all Christians here now. He singles out some. He says, to those who are mature. Even a Christian can look at some of the things in the Christian life and think of it as foolishness. But to those who mature, he says, we speak a wisdom not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages. Now, immediately what you're struck with in that text is a comparison between God's wisdom and the wisdom of this age. In Paul's day, it was his age. But certainly the application is to any age of any day. We live in a world that uh, uh, always has a certain atmosphere of ideas and presuppositions and influences that it thinks will work best in contrast to the previous ages. And ours is no different than that. Every age has its own cultural pace setters. Those whose ideas and insights and philosophies and theories dominate the landscape of a particular people of a particular time, and ours is one of those times. But you can go to other places around the world and find a whole different set of values and scales to measure life. In fact, if you've lived as long as I have, and some of us who've lived even longer, we've gone through a number of ages already. If you go back to the 60s when I was a teenager, the dominant philosophy was to do away with the basic institutions of life and let everything be free and simple, almost Rosarian. Free love, you know, uh, tune in and turn on and drop out. 
Yeah. Worked, didn't it? Then came the 70s, and the 70s, as Christopher Lash said, was kind of a generation of cultural narcissism. Me, myself, and I was the predominant theory. Everybody got into themselves. You know, that's where self-esteem finds its roots. Everybody focused on, I've got to love myself. There are a lot of people who walked out of their marriages saying that phrase, I've just got to love me. So it became the me generation. And the 80s hit, and we changed ages. We laughed at that. We thought, man, that was too much. Image is everything. Him with the most toys, that's the person who wins. So it was the decade where everybody got all that stuff, got as much as they could. And then we hit the 90s and everybody said, man, I got too much stuff. I got to get rid of it. I got to simplify. I got to downsize. So we come to the 90s. And with the 90s, also a new philosophy has kind of breathed its breath into our age. It's the age of relativism. It's the age in which we now for the name of tolerance, we make everything the same. All religions are the same. All lifestyles are the same. All values are the same. We're all equal. And yet somehow, that's not working. That's why Alan Bloom called it the closing of the American mind, this 90s. Because we can't see the obvious. You know what the problem is with the wisdom of any age? It has a shelf life to it. It's like when you go, you know, and you buy a bottle of aspirin and it says when it expires. The wisdom of every age has a date on it when that wisdom expires. The only sad thing is, is that when that wisdom expires, you've got all kinds of people and all kinds of marriages and all kinds of lifestyles and all kinds of hopes and all kinds of dreams expire with it. That's the problem with that kind of wisdom. It eventually passes away. Which leads the next generation to kind of laugh at the previous generation. You know, when my kids look at pictures of the clothes I wore in the 60s and 70s, they just have the biggest hoot. Of course, I'm laughing on the inside because I know the same is going to happen to them when they have kids. But the, the generation rises up and looks back and they laugh at what the previous generation did, and they scorned their limited insights. You know, it's kind of got that arrogant kind of, we wouldn't have done it that way. They marvel at their foolish and narrow perspectives that kind of, boy, Dad, you were close to the flat earth theory kind of feel. You know, I remember standing in Krakow, Poland, at the University of Krakow, where Galileo was a professor, and I was in his classroom. And I remember our little guide there talking about how he was ridiculed by that whole age for believing that the earth revolved around the sun. What a foolish, stupid statement for that day. But we laugh at them. You know, when I was driving on a trip not too long ago, I listened to the original broadcast of Abbott and Costello's Who's On First? Some of you probably heard that. If you hadn't, you need to hear it. But in it, since it was the original broadcast, it came with the commercials. And one of the commercials was a camel commercial. And when the advertiser came on to talk about camels, he talked about how soothing it was to your throat, how it cooled your throat, how it was good for your T-zone, your throat zone, I guess is what that referred to. And I marveled at that. But then to back up the claims, the advertiser said this, camel has surveyed 38,000 doctors, and those doctors prefer camels two to one. Well, I wonder if we have any physicians who want to stand up and give a testimony 
about camels. I can give a testimony about camels because my mom and dad smoked them. They were part of that generation. And I remember going into the ICU unit to visit my mom when she was dying of lung cancer. And I remember it was just interesting about that same time my uncle was in the same ICU unit, JB. And JB was dying of the T-zone cancer, throat cancer. And next to him was my cousin, same generation, dying of lung cancer. Coughing, spitting up, gurgling. Then I see a teenager driving around with all those images of Joe Camel, thinking that that's going to bring him life. So foolish. And that's just the beginning of the foolishness of our age. That's just a small pin drop into all the other kinds of advertising and promises and lies that are perpetrated on you every day so that you've got to kill yourself to look a certain way, dress a certain way. And when you go in everybody's house, they got the abdominizer so they can have, you know, the six pack that you'll never get. But you try so hard thinking it's going to give you life and it won't. It won't. It's a lie. It's a joke. Sir Isaac Newton, I thought, had a proper respect for man's limited understanding when he said, as one of the learned men of his day, I am like a little child standing by the seashore, picking up a pebble here and a pebble there and admiring them while the great sea rolls in in front of me. <laughs> what that tells me is, is that we started point A, and we have to realize we have such limited understanding about life, and there's so many influences that would lead us down a longer, more rugged path, and yet God stands there and wants to give us life. How do we get that quality of life? Paul's point is simple and direct here in this passage. He says, it takes, listen, it takes a special kind of wisdom. A wisdom that has, in this text, three distinguishing characteristics. Let me give them to you. First, it's a wisdom with permanence. Look at the end of verse 7. He says, God predestined this glory, or this wisdom rather, before the ages, he says. Even before he created these worlds, he had a wisdom already in mind, predetermined, already set forth in stone that would allow this creation that he had intended to create to have a quality of life, a life that works a life that uh, doesn't have to go down all these jagged pathways, but is clear and plain. He set it forth in His Word. He's given us that. I want you to turn over to Proverbs chapter 3 for just a moment, and I want you to pretend with me. We're going to have a pretend exercise. Pretend that you're getting up early in the morning and you've decided that you're going to read the Scriptures for your quiet time and and as you're sitting there in the dark of that moment, a glow appears in the corner, and it's God. And if I could use this text to say, this is what God would speak since we're in this section of Scripture, here's what I think God would say. He would say this to every man and woman. It's like almost you feel a pleading. And in the Proverbs, you do, because it's from a dad to his son. But think of it as from God to you. Here's, here's what he would say. And I'm going to paraphrase a little as we go. Proverbs 3. My child, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace. These things will add to you, I promise. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablets of your heart. 
so you will find favor and good repute in my sight. But not just mine. You'll find it with your friends. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And don't lead on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge me. Look to me. And I'll make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear me and turn away from evil. And if you do that, it will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Look at verse 13. How blessed is the man who finds God's wisdom and the man who gains God's understanding. For its profit is better than the profit of silver and its gain than fine gold. This wisdom is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Listen, long life is in her right hand. Don't we want that? It's not the health spot. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Don't we want to be a success? Her ways are pleasant ways, not painful. And all her paths are peace. She is the tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who hold her fast. God said that to you. Would you listen? Would you hear? You see, what is in this text is nothing but pure, unadulterated quality of life. That's what He's promising. Well, I want you to know in every age there are two kinds of wisdom. There's the wisdom that's passing away, <laughs> and there's the wisdom that's permanent. And one of the features of God's wisdom is that when you get to the end, it's just as pure, it's just as authentic as it was in the day in which you heard it. And that will not be true for what you're hearing from the world today. It won't. You'll laugh at what you used to think was important if you listen to the world. Second feature of God's wisdom is that it has purpose. Look at the end of verse 7. I want you to circle a phrase because it's one of the few places it's found in Scripture, to our glory. God has predestined all this wisdom, not, listen, not for Himself, though He certainly gets that glory, but to our glory. That's an odd phrase. You'd expect it to say to His glory. You know, most of the time the church is talking about God's glory, and it should. That's, that's important. But notice, this is not a misprint here. God desires for us to have the highest and the best and the brightest parts of this life. He wants it to be ours. The idea that God and Christianity is somehow holding back on you and keeping you from the pleasures of this life and somehow going to set you on a place that at the end you'll regret it is such a lie that you would think He was going to lead you to a place where at the end you would look back and say, boy, I really missed it. I wish I'd have done this. I wish I'd have listened to that person's advice. To think that way is such a lie. God is saying just the opposite. He's saying, my wisdom is so that you can get to the place that you want to go. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. And you start in ignorance. Can't you understand that? And you want to end in quality of life. And the shortest distance between those two points is my word with my wisdom and my direction. Any other way is going to be longer, harder, and more painful. Now, last week, Dan talked about a friend of his that was kind of going all over the place and couldn't see the big picture. We probably all identified with that, didn't we? We probably all had friends who have spent most of their life 
chasing after whirly rainbows. And I certainly had a friend, one of my best friends, as a matter of fact, in high school, who's a great basketball player, real good looking, good student, sharpest mind I've ever been around. And yet he squandered all of that during his high school years on himself. Used all those things just to make himself look better. He's always thinking about making himself look better. You know, and how he's going to use that to manipulate, especially women. And he did that to his pain. And then he got a college scholarship, but he didn't last very long because when he got to college, you know, drugs were in in the 60s, and he wanted to be the leader. So he had him a little marijuana field outside of town, got caught, got kicked off the basketball team. You know, and then he kind of went through the live-in kind of thing and the free love, so he brought a girl in, lived with her, got her pregnant, fathered a child outside of wedlock. Then she left him and just broke his heart because he really was in love with her. Then one day in the early 80s, he ended up at my house out in Tucson, and uh, we were sitting there talking, and you know, now he was a vegetarian, and he had his juicer with him, and, and uh, I asked him where he was going, and he said, you know, he said, I want to show you this. He was selling used guitars to major rock groups like the Rolling Stones, and he, he had his star line, and his star line went through Rio de Janeiro, and so he was heading for Rio, because he said, success is in Rio because of my star line. He called me one night, he was a guitar player for Amy Grant and uh, went there. I thought maybe something would really happen in his life, but it hadn't. He was just kind of nibbling at another philosophy. Now he's probably a successful corporate executive of knowing Gary, but you know what? His road has been long and hard and empty. Because in every place I've touched into Gary's life, every place, he's not there. He's not there. That's the foolish wisdom of the world. God says, I've got something different, and it's to your glory that you listen to me. It's the struggle between, am I really going to believe this, or am I just going to attend here and listen? And it better be good this morning. And that brings us to the third feature of God's wisdom. It's a wisdom that's elusive. It's a wisdom that's elusive. Look back at verse 7. You'll notice it says that God's wisdom is called the hidden wisdom. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? It may sound even a little strange that it's a hidden wisdom. And some of us say, well, God's wisdom's not hidden. I mean, gosh, you look at this. Here it is. He's put it even in a book. It makes perfect sense. You just need to read it. It's all here for you. And I want you to know God's wisdom is not all here. Now, that may sound like a heretical statement, but the truth is there is a difference between God's Word and God's wisdom. And sometimes you just need to stop and remind people of that. And I'm all for... God's Word. It's a precious, precious truth to us. But God's Word and God's wisdom are different. They only overlap. They only become one when God grants understanding in that moment. When there's a real point of enlightenment where you meet with God and God is breathing that Word into your soul and He's saying, this is what I have for you. This is where I want you to go. This is what I want you to do. And here's, here's the hard part. Only God can give that. I know people who can read the Word and, and study it, and they can be total unbelievers. They can see it, but they can't hear it. They can, they can kind of understand it, but they really can't comprehend it because God has to grant that in a special supernatural way. We don't like that because that takes the control away from us, doesn't it? Look what he says in verse 8. He says, that the rulers, they, they had God's Word, but at the same time, 
they didn't understand it. None of the rulers of this age has understood it. If they'd understood it, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which has not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. It's an adventure. It's not, this is not for heaven, by the way, this verse. It's for now. God has prepared all this for now. But even with that all prepared, with people reading the word, they don't get it. And you know why? Because they don't have an open heart to God's Spirit. That's why the next verse, verse 10, begins, but to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. God's wisdom flows into God's Word when God's Spirit grants that we have insight into it. If we don't have God's Spirit illumining that information to us, it's just more of an academic exercise. Jesus knew that, and He knew that people without His help, would think that somehow they could master the Word, and that's why you have Pharisees. I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 13 just for a moment. I want you to see this played out in another setting. It's when Jesus was on the earth speaking to people, and so often He spoke in parables, and His disciples couldn't understand, why are you speaking to Him in parables? And that's where we pick up in Matthew 13, and I want you to look at verse 10. The disciples came to Jesus and said, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, to you, listen, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it's not been granted. Now they both could read it, but one knew the mysteries, the other didn't. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And he shall have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. They don't get it. While hearing, they do not hear. While comprehending, they do not understand. And you know why? Because I don't let them. And you go, gosh, that doesn't sound fair. It's not fair. And yet it is fair. It is unfair because, yes, these disciples were favored over the rest who listened. But I want you to know it isn't unfair in that that favored status of understanding really is not closed to anybody. The reason the disciples could understand is because of what it says in verse 12. It said, whoever has, they had a relationship with Jesus Christ. They had come and sold their life out completely to Him. They were not still bargaining between the world and the kingdom. They had come to a place where they had chosen to let everything aside and follow Him. Their hearts were submissive. Their spirits were open, wide open. And God knowing that and seeing that, which I can't see that in you or you and me, but God seeing it, to those people only, He granted this wisdom. To those whose hearts are still dinkering with the world, who's still trying to play it off and have the best of both. A God who can see the heart can look into that heart and say, you know, they're not ready yet. I'm not going to let them see. They need to flush all that other stuff out of their system first. And then I'll let them know what life's about. That's why some of us, even as Christians, have to run up on the rocks and crash our boat until we're willing to come to a place where we say, I'll do anything. What do you want me to do? And then we get granted that favored status 
And God's Word takes on a whole new richness and His Spirit comes in and enlightens us and starts directing our path for the first time. That's why some of you have never had a real encounter with Jesus Christ. It's not because you can't see the Word. Not because you're not a part of a community group. It's not because you're not in a Bible study. You may be in all those things, but if you really looked at your life, there's not a quality of life there. There's not rich experiences with God there. There are not things where you've seen prayers answered in some incredible way there. There is a lot of struggle. There's a lot of dead ends. There's still pain. There's still problematic relationships and all the other things that go with it. And you are confused, but you're going to all these meetings. Why is that? It's because the God of heaven, even with you having the Word, looks down into your heart and He goes, you're not ready. You're not ready to have me lead your life. So we'll just wait. You know, that makes people real nervous hearing those kind of words because all of a sudden, you're not in control. But see, the real wise person understands he's never, ever been in control. God will blind the best parts of the kingdom from you until your heart is ready to be open to where He wants to take you, whatever that means, wherever that means to go. See, to have wisdom, to have that first component called basic wisdom, you have to have two things. You have to have the Word, but you have to have an open, yielded heart. You're not going to find a formula to answer every question in life in the Word. But if you have an open, yielded heart, you put yourself in the position of wisdom. And then you need one other major component. You need the support system that's called the Holy Spirit. That's the second major component here. The one who then helps lead your life. Remember, right here now, this whole room is filled with music. Now you can't hear that music, can you? But if we had a radio... We could turn it on and we could hear all that music that's flooding this auditorium. It's the same way with the Spirit of God. We have the Word like right now. We're opening it and talking about it and you're sitting there hearing it. But you may not be able to properly process it. You may be totally unable to really receive it and hear what it really has to say for your life in specific. And the reason is, is because you have to have the Spirit on. You have to be tuned into Him and yielded to Him. That's why in verse 10 it says, for to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. See, it's God Himself who's the one who guides a person through life and makes it rich and leads you to that quality of life. The Word is just one part of that process. You have to have the Word, but you have to have the Spirit to really live a full quality of life in the Spirit. How many of you have been to a foreign country and found your desperate need for an interpreter? Let me just see your hands for a second. They, they become so important when you're in a foreign country to really find where everything is and go to the right spots and understand what's really taking place around you. You depend on them and trust them. And that's the whole point. You've got to walk in the Spirit. He's the one who helps us to understand and clarify our situation. And we go, well, I don't know how to do that. Well, I didn't know how to walk either when I was six months old. You've got to learn and skin your knee occasionally until you begin to understand how to walk with Him. That's the whole point of this text here. He's the one who's an interpreter. The, the, the difference is, is the Spirit as an interpreter will never deceive you like the world. It's like the old story of Pancho Vilas, who was the crook who went across the border and robbed American towns and raced back into Mexico and 
Finally, they sent a Texas Ranger to get him. They said, just either get the body or the cash. We don't care. Just get him. So he goes down there, and he finally captures Poncho, and he's wanting to bring the money back, and yet Poncho doesn't speak English, and so he gets an interpreter, and the, he says through the interpreter, tell Poncho I want the money, and Poncho says back, I'm not going to give you the money. I'm not going to tell you where it is. So finally he says to Poncho, he says, you tell Poncho that if he doesn't give me the money, that they've already told me I don't need to bring it back, I can just kill him and bring the body back, and I will in three seconds if he doesn't tell me where it is. So the interpreter turns to Poncho and tells him that, and as the ranger cocks back his gun, Poncho realizes this guy's dead serious. So Poncho says, wait a minute, I'll tell you where the money is. The money is down in the cave right at the end of town, right in the back side. Just go in there and turn to the left, and it's there. And the interpreter turns to the Texas Ranger and says, Poncho says he'll never give you the money. And as far as he's concerned, he's prepared to die. <laughs> See? In some ways, that's exactly the way the world treats us. It lies to us. But God will never lie to us. His Holy Spirit is absolutely trustworthy as an interpreter of life. And you've got to find how to learn to live by that Spirit. He wants you to have the best part of life. Look at verses 12 and 13. That's why it says, Now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Now notice the next line. That we might know the things freely given to us by God. And see, part of the problem is there are good things laying around you right now that God has already given you, but you don't know how to pick them up. And the reason you don't know how to pick them up is because you don't have the interpreter leading you to those things. There are spiritual adventures in life that'll take you way beyond your comfort zone. But if you're fearful and all your life is is trying to manage your life into a nice little package, then you've got the Spirit on off. And you'll never hear it. And you'll go through your whole life with a nice little control package that every once in a while will erupt on you and then you don't know what to do. But what's worse, at the end of your life, you don't have a lot. And you look back, and you regret what you've done. And you wish you would have taken more chances. And you wish you would have tried new adventures. But you just didn't listen. And the Spirit would have taken you there. And even to places that you've never thought up. You'll end up doing things that you never imagined. Eye has not seen ear is not heard. It's not even entered into your heart. But if you walk by the Spirit, you'll receive all those things. And you won't be sad you did it. You'll be delirious that you did it with joy. It's called the abundant life. God has given you this extrasensory perceptor called the Spirit of God. You know, that's why in the Scriptures it says that the identifying mark to coming to Christ is not your confession of faith that I believe in Jesus or don't believe in Jesus. Now that's how we assume people have come to Christ. They, they pray with us to receive Christ and those kind of things. But the Scripture says the true identifying mark of a person coming to Christ is not their confession, but rather it's God granting His Spirit to go live within that person. It says in Ephesians, Paul says that we know we're His because we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of redemption who's given us a down payment that God will reclaim us at the end of time. And I thought it was so interesting in Jesus' day, when you come to John 2, right before he has an encounter with the most religious man in Israel, Nicodemus, listen to what it says. It says that 
Many were trusting in His name, beholding the signs which He was doing. They were believing in Him. But Jesus, on His part, knowing the heart of man, was not entrusting Himself to them. For He knew what was in their heart. Now that precedes the incident with Nicodemus. But it's like a person who wants to have a religion but not really give his life to it. Jesus looks at that person. They can be real religious. But you know what He does? They confess. They walk the aisle. They tell people they've become a Christian. But Jesus, on His part, is not entrusting Himself to them. Because He can see what no one else can see. He can see their heart. And He says, I'm not coming. Even with your form, I'm not coming. And then you enter the story of Nicodemus where this great religious teacher comes to Jesus and says, you know, you're this great teacher and we know you're from God. And Jesus goes past all that stuff and says, you know what? You, you, unless you're born of the Spirit, you'll not see the kingdom of God. That authority comes from the throne of God. You cannot play games with Jesus Christ. And your confession means nothing if the heart doesn't go with it. Just because you grew up in the church means nothing if your heart didn't go with it. Just because it feels comfortable doesn't mean anything. You think it's almost like a good luck charm, it's going to get you to heaven? Doesn't mean anything. When God looks at your heart, if it's not wide open, He doesn't come. Those are hard truths. But a real commitment to God and a dependence on His Word puts me in the position of wisdom. And then I'm dependent on the Spirit of God coming into that and breathing life into it and directing me and pushing me to a new lifestyle altogether. And let me tell you, all I can say, <laughs> all I can say today is that's what He's done for me. I would not be in the ministry. I would not be in the ministry if God hadn't forced me with His Spirit into the ministry. I was not interested in the ministry. In fact, I fought against the ministry for a time being. I thought of a way to kind of be a minister and not a minister by being a Christian counselor. But when you're open before God, he doesn't let off. He's got a place for you to go, a thing for you to do, experiences to have that He's crafting, He's making up. But when you're so busy making it up yourself, you've got the button on off. And you'll get what you want, but you won't like what you get because you leave God out. So the path just becomes longer and longer and longer from ignorance to quality of life. That's the point. The Holy Spirit and His leadership is the absolute key to a better Christian life. He is the one who turns life into an adventure. He is the one who makes it special. He's the key to outliving the world. We'll talk more about that in this Corinthian series as we go further. But here's what I just want you to hear today. Because I had a flock of young guys come up after the service to talk to me. You didn't tell us how to do it. You didn't tell us how to do it. And I looked at one of the guys and said, do you want a formula? And he went, yeah, what's the formula? Well, see, that's what's hard. There isn't a formula. See, that's what you want, don't you? You want a formula, but there is no formula. As best I can give it, it's just the Scriptures are here. That's important. Your open heart is here. 
That's essential. And God's Spirit is available. That's an absolute. And those three have to mix in the life of your life. And so when you get up and you're wrestling with some decision, do I go to Atlanta or Dayton? See? The point is, is God's Word will give something, but God's Spirit finishes it. And you have to wait. And you have to wrestle. And you have to learn how to walk with Him. Do I marry Bill or Joe? I don't know. He better be a Christian, because the Bible says that. And when you go, yeah, well, Joe's kind of a Christian, and you know, you kind of work on that. No, no, if you listen to God, He'll keep pressing. He won't let you off. But He'll also, in the end, tell you it's Bill. You know, we're all in that venture together after the State of the Church Address. We've talked about a radical season of faith and faith giving and those kind of things. I don't know what you heard in that, but let me just give some categories that go with that. See, the person who's already got their life planned out for the next six months, when they heard the State of the Church Address, they said, okay, well, I'll give this. There's an immediate decision, or I'm not, I've already done that. But they don't consider the place they're in. They don't consider the time they're in. They don't consider what God's Word says about spiritual leadership and what He's done. It, that, none of that matters. They've already got their life plan. They finished that Sunday. Just like they finish everything else in their life. It's already, they've already made their decision. They don't need a lot of deliberation. They just decide, move on. That's one way you can do it. But I'll promise you, if I got into that person's life, you see a lot of heartache. You see a lot of dead ends. You see a lot of wrong, because they did that in their marriage. They do that with their parenting style. They do that in their company and their personal life. There's another person that likes control. So they say, and they like to finish things. So they take the devotional guide and say, we're going to do it. Check it off. So we dutifully go down through that. But, but they're just kind of going through the motions. They too have already kind of decided what they're going to do. And they might hear something and ask what this other family's doing. Or, you know, they ask around, but they're pretty much already concluded. That's another way of doing it. There is another way to do it. And that's to start with a clean sheet and an open heart before God. That's the way to do it too. Now you may end up at the same place. You may end up doing... The point is not how you conclude. It's the process. That's what's important. So instead, you sit down and you say, I want to look at those Scriptures. I want to look what it says there in 1 Corinthians 6. And you start looking at it and you think, and the, only this can happen in the privacy of your life. You say to yourself, God, I'm willing to do whatever you want. Speak to me. I'm willing to work this through. And I'm going to wait and listen. And you may take me down some conventional path. That'd be great. Or you may take me down some path that attacks me in the place. Man, I've been running from you for years. I don't, I'm afraid. I've never really done anything. I, don't take me. All of a sudden, you start feeling pull you over to this door. And you go, don't open that door. Whatever you do, don't open that door. And he opens it. He says, I want you to go in here. And you think it's a closet. You think he's going to lock you away and take your money and you're going to end up being mad at the church. You know, they don't mean it. They're just a bunch of greedy people anyway. They got enough. Look at this place. And God is saying, hey, in here, in here, I'm, I'm going to take you to a whole new world. This is just the portal to it that you've never been before. 
Do you want to go? Or do you want to stay over here in your cramped little home doing what you've always done for the last 45 years? It's up to you. But, but there's an adventure here if you want to take it. And so it is in what you decide about your recreations, what you decide about next week, what you decide about your job, what you decide about your kids, what you decide about your values. All I want you to tell you is, is that God has a plane lifting off for new adventures that are without regret. Or you can stay here on the island of Alcatraz and keep doing the same old things you've always done with your little world of control, getting what you're trying to do and play both sides of the fences. You can do that. It's up to you. But this book and this chapter is an invitation to enjoy all of life. It's unconventional, but it's permanent and it's thrilling. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look here in your word. And there are probably some of us here today that a message like this is so unsettling because it brings us up to a place that we're not experiencing. And so our choice is either to say we're making it up and discount it all together or just walk back into what feels comfortable for me. But Lord, I pray that you would open hearts here today because we're not talking about anything other than an invitation to glory. And for some of us, it maybe hasn't even started yet because we don't even know you really. For others of us, God is trying to stretch us beyond ourselves to new worlds, but we've never turned the receiver on. Help us to do that, Father, I pray. Help us to be a church that's not just in a radical season of giving. We're just radical. We're just wild enough to believe You and we're just crazy enough to listen to You. We're fools for Christ's sake, but we are the inheritors of the abundant life. We thank You for this day to remind us of it. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.